class. This is your professor, Debbie, and this is True Crime University. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining me. I had some audio issues last episode. I don't know if you noticed. I don't know what the, the problem was exactly, but at times it sounded like I was in a wind tunnel or something. And I'm trying something a little bit different. I don't know if it's going to make a difference or not, but hopefully. And I'm still practicing talking with these new teeth. So hopefully Yins can understand me. Let's see, do we have any business? I think I told Yins that uh, today's case is a, is a child murder, so not a family-friendly one. And here's my usual disclaimer. All of the information I present is available to the public, and any sound clips are from news or court, which are also public. The purpose of this podcast is for information and education. I mean no disrespect to anybody, especially victims or their families. I in no way intend to glorify criminals. And I talk about psychology, but I can't diagnose anybody. I have no credentials. So therefore, when I pretend to diagnose people, it's just speculation. Tonight, we are going to be talking about Cassandra Lynn Hansen otherwise known as Cassie, and she was born on January 20th of 1975, and at the time of her untimely death, she was six. She had a little sister, Vanessa, who was four, and her mom and dad, Ellen and Bill, were separated. They lived in the town of Egan, Minnesota, which is a suburb of St. Paul. It's on the bank of the Mississippi River, supposedly a good place to live, There's lots of parks, coffee shops, restaurants, lakes, ponds. It's known for trees. It has a water park and a zoo. I don't know if any of of that stuff was there when Cassie was alive. I hope she got to experience some fun place anyway. And supposedly the 26th safest city in the U.S., which is, I would say, pretty safe. So we are going to the evening of November 10th, 1981. And after they had dinner, Cassie, her little sister Vanessa, and her mother went to the Jehovah Evangelical Lutheran Church in St. Paul for a, what they call a family night service. Not real sure exactly what that is, but it must have been cool because Cassie was excited about it. And they got there a little bit early, and when they got to the church, the girls went downstairs to the, they had like a children's area where they had Sunday school, and I'm thinking maybe they had toys or something that uh, attracted their attention downstairs, but anyway, they go downstairs to to play, or I don't know what what they're doing, and um, about 7 o'clock p.m., Cassie said to her mother that she had to go to the bathroom. So she goes down the hall and up the stairs, and she was seen on the stairs by a female church member. And then she just never came back from the bathroom. So after a while, her mother's like, okay, where's Cassie? And she looks in the bathroom. She's not there. She looks all over at the church, calls her name, can't find her. She looks outside, can't find her. So now... Other church members start to join in the search. We have a bunch of people running all over looking for her, calling her name. And her mother must have been absolutely panicked. Cassie's dad, Bill, later said, quote, 
I got the phone call from Ellen saying that Cassie was missing and, you know, my heart stopped. And I think I was just breathing heavy, you know, and just thinking, oh boy, this is because you know your child and you know that she would just not walk away from something like that. Right away, I knew something was definitely wrong, end quote. So what he's saying is that they taught Cassie and Vanessa, they taught their kids, don't go with strangers, you know, what you usually teach your little kids. If, if something somebody says, hey, little girl, come get some candy or whatever, don't go with them. And they know that, that they did a good job of this. This was pretty ingrained in them because just recently before this happened, the girls were playing outside and somebody talked to Vanessa. I don't, the little one, I don't know if it was, it was probably just somebody totally innocent, but Cassie pulled her by the arm into the house and said, no, it, you know, you don't talk to strangers. So they knew that, that Cassie was a smart little girl. And unfortunately, I adorable little girl. I have a couple pictures of her. I don't know. I hate when I don't know about, about victims. Like, what's a day like? What's a day like to do? Their favorite color? You know, I, I don't like to hear stuff about victims. Like, their smell lit up a room. Or they were full of life. Well, of course they're full of life. They're alive. I like to hear little tidbits, meaningful things, like their favorite song or a favorite TV show or something that really, you know, brings them alive to me when I'm hearing about a victim. And I like to share those things with, with Yins, and I always feel bad because this is such an old case. I just didn't have that much information available on Cassie herself, other than she was excited about going to church on this night. So you got to hand it to the police, the St. Paul police. They were there within the hour that she was reported missing. They got a picture of her, and this would have been like a school picture. They got it out to the news and the TV, you know, all the media. There were a couple hundred people gathered that night, and they searched all night long for her. The police went door to door in the area of the church and volunteers made hundreds of calls. I don't know exactly who they called, but they did. And the point is that the community made a really big deal out of this because a, a little girl was abducted, as, as it turns out, as they suspected, from a church of all places at, at seven o'clock in the evening with a bunch of people around. So, yeah, everybody was like, oh my God, you know, who could do such a thing? How could this happen? There were 107 known sex offenders around the area, 57 of whom lived or worked in the vicinity of the church. And of course, they were all interviewed and crossed out. So, at about 11 o'clock the next morning, Cassie's body was found. It was tucked in a dumpster behind an auto repair shop on Grand Avenue, which was three miles from the church. And I have a good old Google map picture on my social media. And I, I tried to pinpoint exactly like where the church was, exactly where the body was found. But uh, keep in mind, this was a long time ago and... That's whatever it was, was probably not an auto repair shop anymore. So I was in Grand Avenue is a long street. I couldn't pinpoint the exact location, but you get some idea. I mean, she was found close by to where she was kidnapped from. She was still dressed in the outfit that she had on for church. 
she had on navy tights on which uh, there was found to be semen on the thigh of her tights. So right away, we know that it's a sex crime. Her hair brats were missing. And because there was more than one, the police assumed that the killer kept them as a souvenir trophy. She had worn black patent leather shoes. I don't know if you know what those are, but in the 70s, that's when I was a kid, uh, little girls wore those a lot. They were patent leathers, shiny, like like a real shiny type of shoe, like a, like a, a fancy shoe that somebody would wear to church or, you know, like a dress-up occasion. And strangely, her shoes were found two blocks away, a little bit mysterious. And in the area where her shoes were found, a witness saw a parked taxi. Could or could not be significant, we don't know yet. So the autopsy said that fortunately there was no trace of rape or penetration, but because of the semen, I don't think I have to spell out what happened to for that to get there. And remember, this was pre-DNA, so um, that's no good. But they did find that whoever did this had typo blood. She had two pubic hairs on her thigh. The cause of, cause of death was ligature strangulation, and they were able to, to determine that it was probably with a two-and-a-half-inch wide belt based on the bruising on her neck. She also had abrasions on her chest, and they theorized that an other belt had been used as restraint on her upper body. And there were also marks consistent with somebody putting a hand over her mouth, you know, to stop her from screaming, which I'm sure she, sure she did, because, you know, who wouldn't? And the police usually have, like, a, what they call holdback information, you know, something that they keep to themselves, uh, and they don't tell the newspaper media about. In this case, it was, and take a note, this is going to be important later, it was that this poor little girl had been beaten about her face and head, ribs, and shoulder. So she was um, somebody's punching bag, unfortunately. They quickly ruled out the parents, which, as you know, or you should know, with any children, you know, abduction or murders, the parents are the first suspects. Her time of death was estimated to be between 8 p.m. and midnight the previous evening. So that would be if she was found to be missing at 7. She was taken and killed within a short period of time. And with most sex offenders who kidnap kids, that's usually how it is. They usually don't keep them for any length of time. They did have a false confession as Sometimes happens when you have a like a high profile case like this, you know, people will come forward and say, Oh, I for attention or whatever is is their issue. You know, I did this. And they had a woman from Texas named Vondale Quanley come forward and she said, uh, you know, I killed Cassie and they're like, um, that's nice, ma'am, but we don't think you can produce sperm. And that was the end of that. Obviously, she just read about it in the newspaper and felt that she had nothing better to do. So fortunately, in this case, there were several witnesses. We saw the one person that saw the taxi, and there was somebody, a church member, who happened to see around the time she went missing a man in the vicinity of 
I guess, the bathroom or the hallway where she was last seen. And he was described as between 50 and 60 years old with what you call salt and pepper hair and dark rimmed glasses. And a few people saw a male of similar description near the dump site, which is, of course, the dumpster. So because it was a child kidnapping, the FBI got involved right away. And this case is interesting because my hero, John Douglas, you know, the profiler from the FBI, he was involved. And he later said that this case was one of the best examples of proactive strategies and the involvement of the citizens. We're going to hear later about how just regular old people helped to crack this case. They had leads, like the sightings of the witnesses and such, but they, they didn't have any arrests. Everybody was working really hard on this. So in February of 1982, I'll be three months after the, the murder, Special Agent Bill Hagmeyer and Brent Frost of the FBI Minnesota office called John Douglas, who was a Quantico, and they asked him to profile the uh, unsub in this case. And if case, in case you don't know what unsub is, it's FBI lingo for unknown subject. So on March 3rd, John Douglas had a conference call with those two agents and the St. Paul police in which he gave his profile after, of course, he'd analyzed all the case information. And and that would be what you would need to do a profile. You would need all the police reports, of course, the autopsy information, any photos that are available like of the scene of the autopsy interviews with the parents, with, with anybody that they did. If it was me doing a profile. I would want to know about the demographics of the area. What kind of place are we talking about? You know, show me a picture of where she was taken from, where where the body was found. The details that I, I gave you about the city, pretty much. Like, are we talking about a... It was, I mean, I don't know about it at that time. Is this a safe area? Is this a high crime area? It. I know it's politically conservative. Whether or not that's important, who knows? But demographics are important when you're making a profile. Victimology is another thing. Who was Cassie besides a cute little six-year-old girl? Uh, what were her habits, likes, dislikes? And it was very important, and I'm, I'm sure John Douglas was told, that she had been taught to be wary of strangers and going off with people. One thing that he did not want to know and that any profiler will say, don't tell me. Do you have any suspects in mind? Because you don't want to be prejudiced. You don't want that in your mind. You, j you just want to give a, just go off of the clues that you have. And it turns out that they actually did have somebody in mind. I'll tell you about him later. But this is why I picked this case to talk about, because I came across it in a book by John Douglas. And I'll, I'll put the information about it in the show notes. And the profile is pretty long and it's pretty detailed. I want to talk about that because um, I know, well, I'm guessing probably a lot of you like me are a big fan of profiling. That's like my thing like my favorite topic or thing that I'm most interested in under the topic of crime and psychology, because it's like a mixture of crime and psychology, really. And I think I did mention, I don't know, it was in my intro, that that was always my dream job to be a profiler. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if that, that's what 
it's like, you know, that question, if you could do anything right now, and a lot of people say, oh, I want to be a rock star or an actor or something. I want to be a profiler. And I think everybody who knows me knows that about me. But anyway, I can be an armchair profiler. And I'm not really in an armchair. It's it's actually a kitchen chair. So I'm more of a kitchen chair profiler. But by the way, just a little tidbit for your entertainment or knowledge. Profilers are like psychics. You don't need any credentials to call yourself one. You can just say, I'm a profiler. Like I've read some textbooks about profiling. I could call myself a profiler if I wanted. I mean, I've made them, I, you know, I've done them. And they will probably be similar to those made by so-called professionals or people with what you call formal training. And probably some of you could too. Anyway, first I'll give you the profile and then I'll tell you about their main suspect. Now, first of all, just picture me writing on a blackboard so you can follow along. John Douglas said that, and I'm sure this will be no surprise to most people, the killer was a white male with a long history of obsession with children. Why white male, you might ask? Well, with sex crimes, the perpetrator is almost always, no, I didn't say always, I said almost always the same race as the victim or the, the targeted population. John thought that this was not just a casual spur-of-the-moment crime, but more of a crime of opportunity. And there is a difference, and I'll try to explain. For example, they might sound kind of the same, crime of opportunity and spur-of-the-moment, but they're actually not in this, this instance, and I'll explain. A spur-of-the-moment would be that the guy belonged in the church, or, you know, belonged there, was, was there for the family night thing, saw Cassie, was like, oh, I want that little girl. Let me grab her. Grabbed her. But he, he didn't think it was that. He thought that this man was obviously a sexual predator who had been prowling places where he knew kids were. Possibly had watched the church or was somehow familiar with it. Maybe he knew that there was a family night program going on because I don't go to church, but I don't think seven o'clock at night is like a normal time for church to be in session, but it, it seems like this was definitely a special occasion. He could have known that. He could have lived nearby or worked nearby. And as we're going to see later, yeah, one of those thought he might go in and Maybe this was not the first time that he had gone into a place and actively looked around for somebody that he thought was like his type or, you know, he had the opportunity. And unfortunately, Cassie was the perfect opportunity because she was alone in that church hallway for just the right amount of time for him to snatch her. And this next item kind of ties into what I was just explaining. He frequented places that he knew kids would be, where he could observe them and the parents have their guard down. Church is the perfect place because if you take your kid to church, that's like the last thing on your mind, that somebody's going to grab your kid as well as it should be, right? I mean, you know, if you think of safe places, a church should be up there. As far as the unsub's age, John said that this is usually hard to guess because the emotional or like experiential age of the perpetrator doesn't always match the chronological age. Do you remember the Richardson, Richardson family murders? 
with uh, Jasmine, the 12-year-old, and she had that 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Steinke. Remember how he had fetal alcohol syndrome and ADD and all kinds of issues where he was, his chronological age was 23, but they said mentally he was like 15 or something. Well, that's the same idea. So there are people, there's a lot of people like that who are like their mental age is, is way younger than their actual age or the opposite. So that's why he's saying that it's hard to pin down, you know, oh, he's about 35. Or, if you ever see that on TV um, where they go, okay, white male between mm, 35 and 40. No, no, that's too narrow. And you can't, you can't narrow it down that much. John Douglas thought that this guy had to at least be in his 30s and I did not totally was not aware of this. He said the prime time for somebody to have a child obsession is like your early to mid 20s. I guess like for if you're a pedophile that it really comes out and he said that and this is no surprise either. He would have a previous history of sex offenses involving children and they would probably not be murder but something leading up to murder, maybe molesting or exposing themselves or usually sex offenders, whether they're with kids or adults as victims, they start out with something, I don't know if I want to use the word innocuous, but less serious, peeping, exposing themselves, stealing underwear, like gross kind of behaviors, photographing people inappropriately, like Rodney Alcala, the, you know, the dating game killer who did that. Lonnie Franklin went around taking pictures of women, remember that? Um, he noticed that the offender got Cassie out of the church pretty quickly and efficiently without making a fuss. So you picture a six-year-old girl. She's going to fuss. She's going to put up a fight and scream. And he managed to get her out of a church where supposedly there were a lot of people without anybody seeing or hearing anything. And that's quite a feat. So because of this, John theorized that this person has a certain level of sophistication and maturity. So probably looking at an older person now. To go along with this, he said that the that he will probably get a thrill out of this situation, meaning getting her out of the church. It would be kind of like a game. Like if he did this successfully, it was like, ha ha, look what I did. I, I stole her out of like under everybody's nose. And the reason he knew this was because he'd actually interviewed child molesters who said that they got a thrill from taking kids from high traffic populous areas like malls and you know, places where there are a bunch of people around. His choice of a child victim shows his inability to deal with his peers in an age-appropriate manner. And this Kind of goes without saying, if he's a pedophile, if he likes kids, well, he probably can't um, keep up with people his own age. Probably doesn't have much interest in people his own age. And probably because he's not able to have his way with adults. Because kids, I mean, think about it, a lot more compliant or, you know, they don't fight or fuss or, or talk back or, well, I mean, they could, but it's not going to do them any good. You know, they, they want somebody that's innocent to totally dominate. John theorized that this unsub may have picked a boy if he had seen a little boy there instead of a little girl. And uh, there's no way to know that. 
He thought that he could be married or have a long-time girlfriend or partner, but was not likely to have a mature relationship. And if he did have a wife partner, she would probably be dependent on him and immature. John put a lot of stress on the fact that this happened in a church. He said that the offender might not even realize why he was there. You know, that this may or may not be his denomination, his, you know, the type of church he belonged to. This was just a theory of his, and it, it turned out to be wrong, but he didn't know this at the time. He said that he may have thought he was there for religious reasons, to communicate with God, like getting a message from God. You know, par paranoid schizophrenics do. You know, that they're like, oh, God told me to, or... Uh, remember Albert Fish? He thought apostles were taught telling him to do stuff. God was telling him he must hurt little kids. It's something along those lines. He thought that this person may have delusions, you know, could be a paranoid schizophrenic. But as it turned out, that was not the case. He theorized that the this unsub would keep diaries and or scrapbook, maybe poetry, something related to his obsession with kids. And remember, this was 1981, so we didn't have the internet, so he wouldn't have internet porn. So what would he look at besides internet porn? You can't just walk into, like, the 7-Eleven and pick up a magazine of kitty porn, because it doesn't work that way. It's not... Uh, readily out there. So as gross as it sounds, what they would do, they would, they would take like, you know, a, a Sears catalog, kids' pictures in their, and they're modeling underwear, bathing suits, whatever. It might be just enough to excite a pedophile. And now they have, now they do this online, but before the internet, they had like underground clubs or groups of pedophiles where they would get together secretly, you know, somewhere and they would exchange. If, if one of them somehow got hold of pictures, probably ones that they had taken themselves and probably, of course, Polaroids. I think you can figure out why they would trade them. And we don't know this guy. We don't know if, if he did that or not. John Douglas also thought that in his residence, there would be at least one Bible with things underlined and notes written in the in the Bible. Again, he's really stressing the religious aspect here. He thought this person would be something of a loner, have a poor self-image, and probably unattractive. And I have a picture, a couple pictures of him, and you can judge for yourself. So not a looker, not a ladies' man. Oh, I mean, if he's picking up little kids, probably not. He thought in order to bodily pick up and carry out a six-year-old, got to be fairly big and strong. So, I mean, that, that's logical, right? He said if uh, he this was a younger person in like 20s or 30s, he may have a either disfigurement or speech impediment that made him self-conscious. If he was an older person, like 40s or 50s, which as it turns out he was. Just a little spoiler alert. He would have some of those things that come with middle age that make you either self-conscious or feel, you know, less than attractive. Like a beer gut, uh, losing his hair, maybe bald. Like I said, not a hottie. He wouldn't have many friends or at least many close friends. His main form of communication or expression would be the diaries or scrapbooks that he wrote in. A lot of pedophiles use audio or videotapes to record their thoughts. A lot of them nowadays like to videotape kids, just, you know, at a playground. 
And nowadays it can be totally innocent because everybody has cameras on their phone, right? So you can just be this dirty old man sitting on the bench. Looks like you're feeding the birds or something. You got your phone and it could just look like you're just playing a game on your phone. But unbeknownst to everybody, you're really have your camera on and you're recording the kids. And nobody's any the wiser. He theorized that if the perpetrator thought that the police were closing in on him, that he would hide his stuff, meaning scrapbooks, diaries, pictures, whatever it is that he had. But he wouldn't destroy it unless it was absolutely necessary because this is like a treasure. He thought that he would be obsessed with the case and the investigation. He might save news clippings. He might talk about it to other people, mention it in casual conversation. Maybe he's at a bar. Hey, you sure about that girl that was kidnapped from the church the other night? You know, just to see what people are saying about it. He may have gone to her funeral or her grave. And as far as the brats missing, John thought that he for sure took them or not for sure, but most likely took them as a souvenir, possibly even gave them to another kid. And if he did, he would likely get a big thrill from seeing the this other little girl wearing the Cassie's brats. And I don't know if you, if you know Ted Bundy. I'm sure everybody knows who he is. And now I'm not going to talk about him because he just bores me. He would steal uh, jewelry from his victims and he would give it to his, I think he had a girlfriend or a couple girlfriends. And he later told investigators that it would give him like a secret thrill seeing the girlfriend wearing a ring or whatever it was that he had taken from a dead girl. And other people, other serial killers have said similar things I've read about. He also thought that like the um, church was a big deal, you know, the, the place of the abduction site, the disposal site, which would be the dumpster, that was a big deal too. Because by tossing her in the dumpster, he was pretty much saying, I'm done with her, that he had a right to do what he wanted with her, and now he's done, and now she's just garbage and disposable. And Lonnie Franklin did that too, remember? There were a couple, like, in a dumpster, or they were near dumpsters, or they were just kind of discarded like trash. Actually, a lot of serial killers have done that, just kind of thrown them, you know, in either in dumpsters or garbage or like garbage. He theorized that the offender may be feeling guilty. So he may start going to church or going more often. How do people deal with stress? Think of, just think of it in general. Drugs and alcohol, smoking. Albert Fish had nightmares about Grace Bud. Remember, maybe he's having nightmares. Um, a lot of people with a guilty conscience, hint, what do they do? They talk to somebody, somebody who they think they can trust, somebody who's maybe they see in a position of confidence, like a uh, religious figure, a therapist, a, um, I don't know, somebody in like the sex working field, spoiler alert, because he thought pretty sure that this guy is following the news. Remember, Albert Fish again. They did this with him and it worked. Remember, this is how they got him out of the woodwork. John Douglas suggested suggested that they, uh, the police or the media, whoever, leave periodic reminders in the media, newspaper, news, so forth, about Cassie, about where she's buried in, you know, in case he wants to uh, go to her grave, make him feel guilty in case he doesn't uh, remember or make sure to remind him. John thought that this was definitely a serial type of offender. 
these people usually have a precipitating stressor in the hours or days or weeks before the crime. And again, to bring up Albert Fish, because he's like such a good example. Do you remember if you were around, for, if you were in my class back then? That was like early days. That was February, I think. Well, before he started going like really nuts and killing people, what happened? His wife left. Well, his wife left him. So he kind of went off the deep end. And a lot of people, a guy I did a pre-sentence investigation on, a ra rapist, that's what he did, he raped somebody. He told me that right before he raped this person, and it wasn't somebody he knew, it was just a random woman he found. I think she was like jogging in a park or she was in, in a park. Like hours before he raped this woman, he had a fight, pretty big fight, I guess, with his girlfriend. So he's mad. And he's, you know, storming around the area. Women, you know, fuck women, they're all bitches. And blah, 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 and comes across a woman and, you know. So, yeah, that is a real thing. It's pre-crime stressors. And John Douglas said the two most common stressors have to do with work and relationships. And we, we just saw that with both Albert and my guy that I interviewed. He told police that a lot of times profilers do this they'll tell the police and then, okay here's what you tell the media you know be real specific this and this and this assuming that the perpetrator is following the media and usually they do he said say the investigation is going well regardless of whether or not it is keep up the emotional pressure on him and this is just what i said he thought that he may have confessed to somebody and that this like so it's almost creepy how accurate he was here. This person saying that he did confess to somebody could be in danger. And, or he may get desperate due to police pressure. He thinks they're closing in, gets stressed, and it may lead him to commit another similar crime. And he suggested if they found a suspect, tell him or shadow him relentlessly. Like, they, like is anybody familiar with, with the Gacy? That's what the police did to him. They they were literally like up his ass everywhere he went for like a couple weeks until he he broke down. Literally, he went to his his lawyer and he told his lawyer what he did. And finally, yeah, he had a lot of ideas. He said this person will probably be nocturnal. You'll probably see the lights on at night. He'll probably drive around after dark and. Remember who we talked about that did that? Lonnie Franklin. Remember with his midnight cruises looking for women? Yeah, I did that. I told you that I didn't I didn't expect that profile to take up so much time. But I I didn't just read off the, the points. I talked about each one. That's why it took so long. I'm gonna tell you about this. I told you they had a suspect in mind. I'm gonna tell you about him. First, I'm gonna introduce you to the hero of our story. And her name is Dorothy Noga. She worked at a massage um, parlor in St. Paul called Lee Lenore's Sauna. And this was kind of massage parlor where you would go and get um, a massage with a little extra thrown in, if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, Dorothy worked at this massage parlor and she wasn't really happy there, but it paid the bills. She had four kids. She had a lot of mouths to feed. And she was the kind of person who was just very understanding, easy to talk to, easy to get along with. People just uh, like clients while she's there laying there being rubbed or whatever. Um, they just would, would talk to her and confide in her. And 
You can probably see where this is going. So the night of Cassie's murder, or should I say the morning, three o'clock that morning, some dude goes to Dorothy to get a massage. And he is a regular client of hers, so he knows her well. And she said he was like hunched over, breathing heavy, shaking, talking fast. Like she could tell he was worked up about something, like something happened to him, you know? So this guy is named Stuart Knowlton. Okay. And he is, he's a killer. He says to Dorothy something very strange. He says to her, um, Dorothy, would you do me a favor? He's like, would you be an alibi for me in case somebody happens to accuse me of something? Which I think we can all agree is a very bizarre thing to ask of somebody. I, I don't know if she agreed or not, but she was like, oh, shit, you know, I don't like this. So what he did was he gave her a business card with his name in front of her on it. And I don't really understand this because he was a taxi driver remember that somebody saw it, said that they saw a taxi by where one of Cassie's shoes was found. I've been in taxis and I never saw any drivers with business cards. So I don't really know what that was about, but it doesn't matter. Okay. He gave her a card with his name and phone number. So total coincidence. This is crazy. This is like one of those, you know, if, if you happen to believe in karma and stuff like that, this around the same time, another dude, comes into Dorothy for a massage and he tells her he's all relaxed and whatever talking. He confesses to her that he fantasizes about having sex with kids. So she's shocked. Oh my God, disgusted. You know, like most people be, you know, this is not Stuart Knowlton. This is a totally different person. That's what's so weird about this, right? So she knows that, of course, like everybody else in the state knows by now about Cassie's murder. And her mind goes back to this weird guy who said about fantasizing about having sex with kids. Not Stuart Knowlton, not him, but this other dude. So she's disturbed enough by this to call in an anonymous tip to the police. So nothing comes of it. She's a good citizen, you know, so she's concerned. Instead of being anonymous, she called the police again and she gave her name where she worked and your know, contact information. And they said, would you come in for an interview? And she said, okay, so this is crazy. They already suspect Stuart Knowlton because he was seen He's a taxi driver. Remember, he was seen around the church that Cassie was taken from, around the time that she was taken. And like many people, probably like hundreds of people, he was questioned. But strangely, and of course this caught their attention, this was a red flag, he refused to be questioned or to take a polygraph. He was 50. He had uh, short gray hair with a receding hairline, thick glasses. He had a history of child sexual abuse and instantly a red flag shot up as, as it should have because he's looking pretty good right now. And when I told you that when they talked to John Douglas, they had a suspect in mind. It was him. Okay, so they had a picture of him, probably a mugshot, in a folder. So Dorothy's sitting there in the interview room to be interviewed. And the uh, detective goes in. He's got this folder of Stuart Knowlton because he thinks that she's going to talk about him, right? But she's not. Crazily enough, you can't even make this shit up. The picture of him falls out of the folder onto the floor. And Dorothy sees it. And she said, oh, 
she recognizes him instantly is the the wacko who said a few hours after Cassie was killed, would you be an alibi for me in case I'm accused of anything? So she sees his, his picture and she goes, is he a suspect? And the detective said, well, it's a good thing he was honest with her. He said, yeah, he is actually, but he won't talk to us. So now Dorothy tells all, she said, you know what? He came in to be a, uh, to get a massage you know, about three o'clock in the morning that went after Cassie was, was taken and she repeated the conversation. So now their antenna are out there like, hmm. So Dorothy offered to call Stuart and try to get him talking and record the conversation and give what she got to the police to use against him. And they said something to the effect like, well, thank you, but we don't want you to do that because in case this would ever come to trial, we couldn't use that because the defense could claim that it was evidence that was obtained illegally, which is a good point. So before we get into what happened with Dorothy and Stort, um, let's talk a little in detail about Stort Knowlton. Who was this turd? Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of information on his background, but he was born on April 30th of 1931 in the town of Petoskey, Michigan. His mother was Helen, his dad was Emery, and he married a woman named Janice, but they divorced in 1942. He was 10 years older than her. I don't know how long they were married for. They had one daughter. So I uh, I told you that he drove a taxi and that his taxi was seen in the vicinity of the church when Cassie disappeared and also near where one of her shoes was found. And we know that he raised the antenna on police when they went to question him as just a matter of routine because they know that his taxi was found in the area. And everybody else in the community is like bending over backwards to help with this investigation. You know, they're looking for Cassie, they're making calls, they're doing all kinds of stuff. And this dude won't even answer some simple questions. So of course that's going to make him look suspicious. Now I already told you that her body was found in a dumpster on Grand Avenue. And it came out later that three people who lived in a house on the 900 block of Grand Avenue would later testify that they saw somebody matching Stort's description standing there staring to what will be the east, what will be towards where. It's called the auto clinic. And of course her body was leaning against some kind of wall, just like watching or, well, they didn't know. They just thought it was kind of odd. So, in hindsight, we can kind of figure out that he wanted to see, when they found her body, he wanted to see the police cars and perhaps media just out of either curiosity or perhaps he would get a, a thrill from this. And even more mysterious is, remember, he was a cab driver and, you know, they have the uh, their radio that they call into their dispatch center every once in a while. And his dispatcher said that later on that day, meaning the day that Cassie was found, that he twice, he got on the radio 
and was, quote, ranting and raving about the murder. And both times, the dispatcher had to warn him about improper use of a radio. This was very bizarre. Even if he had nothing to do with the murder, it's just a very strange type of behavior for some cab driver to just randomly pick up his microphone and start kind of um, giving a speech or like a soliloquy on a murder that recently happened. And his dispatcher was probably like, dude, what the fuck's wrong with you? Get off the radio. Because there's, there's actually any kind of radios, you know, that, that we had in the fire department, EMS, stuff like that. There's pretty strict laws about the use of those. And then, of course, we find out that 3 o'clock that morning, he had gone in to see Dorothy for his massage and uh, told her, made the, the mysterious request, if anybody accuses me of something, be an alibi witness. And how dumb can he be? I mean, to to come out and say that to somebody, you know, if anybody accuses me of anything around this time, and it, it just so happens that, that at that time, one of the biggest crimes in recent history to hit that area occurs, like, duh, I mean, how stupid does he think people are? Most criminals are dumb. Most of the ones I've ever known are dumb. But sometimes it, it absolutely boggles my mind at how stupid they are. And, well, that's fortunate because it it just helps to catch them. If he wouldn't have opened his mouth about that to Dorothy, you know, remember this was before the days of DNA, this case might have never been solved. So it is a really good thing that he was really that stupid. Incidentally, I, I just found this interesting this massage parlor, this Lee Lenore sauna, it was shut down in 1990. It was called a nuisance and, quote, a thinly veiled front for prostitution, end quote. So, um, yeah, in case you were wondering about that, in case you were thinking of going there to get a massage, unfortunately, you're, you're going to have to find another place. So, earlier we learned that Dorothy, by total coincidence, found out that this dude, Stuart, was a suspect, and she had his phone number that he'd given her on his his card, and she decided that she was just going to go ahead, even though the police told her not to. She was just going to go ahead and call him and try to get him talking and see if he would say anything about Cassie's murder. And she called him, And they talked about, well, I don't know, whatever. And like I told you, she's a good listener. And soon they were talking almost every day on the phone, sometimes for several hours. And you got to hand it to Dorothy to sit there and listen to this asshole ramble on for hours. That's, uh, I was going to say she should get a medal, but as we'll see later on, she actually does get a medal, which is well-deserved. She said, told the police that he seemed to be lonely and in despair, and he seemed preoccupied with Cassie's murder. And she told the news media, quote, I would get so depressed talking to him, I wanted to give up. I would just sit and cry, end quote. But she had four kids. She was a mother, and she said her heart went out to Cassie's family. She knew or could imagine what they were going through. And that was her reason for sticking with us, to help 
try to get this family some kind of, I don't want to use the word closure because that's like trite or overused, but justice. So eventually he, and, and we don't really know when or the words he used, but he did admit that he had killed Cassie. And she started taping the conversations. I'm not sure how or what kind of device she used, but she did. She gave police the tapes and they encouraged her now. Of course, once she starts taping, he never actually admits to or, or refers to himself as killing her or involved in the crime again, but he keeps still keeps mentioning it. Now, their last conversation would be on December 13th, so that would be about a month after the murder. And one day, Dorothy went to work at her massage parlor and she woke up to find that she was in a hospital room at St. Paul Ramsey Medical Center. And she's like, what am I doing in the hospital? What happened to me? She had what they call retrograde amnesia. Like if you go through a traumatic event, a lot of times to protect your psyche from the memory, your brain temporarily erases the memory of what happened to you. So her mother was at her bedside and she told Dorothy that she had been stabbed 32 times and had her throat cut at her place of work, the massage place. The, the people that she worked with or somebody had gone into her room or, or wherever she, it was it that she was, she was found unconscious, bleeding to death on the floor near death and one of the EMTs or paramedics or somebody who treated her later said that it was a miracle that she survived with that much blood loss. So that's what happened to her to get in the hospital. The police thought that this wasn't too big of a mystery who did this. They thought that it was Stuart Knowlton and they put a police guard outside her room and John Douglas also agreed that he was most likely the culprit. There were no witnesses to this attack, no forensic evidence. After she got out of the hospital, Dorothy moved to Florida to recuperate, which sounds like a pretty good idea to me to move from Minnesota to Florida, especially in the winter. Now, it's funny, this story, similar to the Dr. Dunch story that I just did, remember there were two heroes that brought him down. Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson. Well, this asshole is also brought down by two heroes, and we already met Dorothy, and we are about to meet the other one. This is Janice Retman, and she was the director of the St. Paul Housing Information Office, and she came into contact with Stuart Knowlton on March 16th, 1982, and he came in. It, this is an organization, in case you haven't figured out, that helps people get housing. People who are homeless or down on their luck or poor or, you know, have some other kind of issues that they're having trouble finding a place to live. So Stort was having a problem uh, keeping residences basically because he didn't know how to act. He came in to talk to Janice and he said he was about to be evicted from a public housing project called Roosevelt Homes. And he said that his wife was leaving him, can you blame her, and taking their two kids. I 
didn't know that he had another kid. I just knew that he had the one daughter. He said he had just started this cab driving job and he'd been to several places looking for help like social service agencies and churches. And I have that underlined in my notes. I just thought it was interesting that he happened to go to churches and did he go to the one that he found Cassie at and it was what did he know of that place was it a possibly a connection it's, it's a good possibility so the reason he was getting evicted was because of complaints from the other tenants and there were two complaints the previous fall which would only been like a few months before that he had allegedly invited two 14-year-old girls into his apartment to play cards. Now, we already know he's an idiot, but hey, girls, want to come in and play some rummy or pinochle? Like, what the fuck, really? Well, even more bizarrely, they went into his apartment, and we already know what he looks like. So, I mean, I... I'm not going to victim blame and, and say what were they thinking, but anyway, they they go into his apartment. So he started to give them this bizarre monologue about how babies are made and sex and birth control and menstruation, and they're like, you know, what is wrong with you? And then to top it off for the icing on the cake, he offered to show his uh, penis. And I think the, the girls are like, okay, we, we've had enough of cards with you or whatever. We're out of here. So, of course, they told their parents. The parents told the police and the public housing office. Unfortunately, he wasn't charged with any criminal offenses. He was just warned. He was warned that any more of these occasions would result in his eviction in February, which would be the month before he met Janice. Again, he just can't behave. He asked a nine-year-old girl to take off her pants. And this poor little girl was so traumatized that she had recurring nightmares about this. So that was the, the last straw. He was told to pack his shit and leave. At the time, he was in an efficiency apartment near a women's shelter where his wife and kids were. Janice told him that she was obligated to report this to the authorities. And she told him, I think you need help, which... Um, yeah, definitely. So when she told the child protection authorities about this, they told her that there had been other reports regarding him. But unfortunately, in none of these instances, which were all kind of similar, hey, come in and play card, just you want to see my dick type of thing. Uh, they were never able to get enough proof to file criminal charges against him. When Janice heard about Cassie's murder, she immediately thought of Stuart Knowlton. Just like me, when she heard that he said that he went to churches to look for help, the same light bulb went off in her head about, you know, the fact that Cassie was abducted from a church. And she took note of the fact that at the time, he lived 10 blocks from the church from which Cassie was taken. So she called him to ask about housing. And she said that he was distraught, was the word she used. He called her back. He said that the police had been there and searched his apartment. And he was so upset that he couldn't even talk to her right now. He told her that he was lonely, quote, going through hell, unquote, and wanted somebody to talk to or visit him. Now, 
she starts thinking like Dorothy did. And she knew that the police wanted information on him. So she went to the police chief of St. Paul. And she basically kind of took over where Dorothy left off. She talked to Stort on the phone. And they talked about these child molestation allegations. He confided about his marital problems. Inability to hold a job. Does this sound familiar to, like, maybe John Douglas's profile? He, this pretty funny. He said that he had recently undergone a religious conversion. And the cause of that, or the impetus for this, was listening to Johnny Cash. And um, I don't know much about Johnny Cash, other than I can't stand his music. So I don't know what it is about his music that would... Um, cause one to seek religion. While they're talking, she took notes, and then she would type these notes out and give them to the police. He never admitted to Cassie's murder to her, but he did talk about it a lot. And, I mean, the, these statements, just in and of themselves, are, are so suspicious. He said that he, quote, had a vision about Cassie's murder and a, quote, sixth sense that Cassie's murder and the attack on Dorothy were related. Now, I told you he was stupid, didn't I? And he would talk about details like the method of disposal, you know, like how she was found in the uh, dumpster. And remember early on, I told you about the police had the little bit of holdback information, you know, the, the thing that they didn't release to the public about how Cassie had been beaten. Well, he mentioned that. So there's no doubt at all now, if as if there really was any at all, that he's the killer. So shortly after this, he was hit by a car, and he would lose part of his leg. He was first in a, in a hospital, and then he was in a nursing home, and Janice visited him while he was there. And sometimes, again, taking a play from Dorothy's book, she would bring a tape recorder hidden in her purse, and eventually she would go to talk to him, and the police would actually wire her. But Unfortunately, he never said anything incriminating, either on the tape or, or when she was wired. John Douglas suggested that she give him a journal to write his thoughts in, which is, is a good idea, of course. Um, I don't know if anything came of the journal, but one of the crazier things that he told her, or, or crazy and, and also implicating besides, okay, he said he's had a vision about the murder. Um, he had a sixth sense that Cassie's murder and Dorothy's attack are related. He let slip the fact that Cassie had been beaten, which nobody else knew about. So now he comes up with the, the bizarre idea that he thinks that he has a, quote, perfect double running around the city. Um, okay. So in May of 1982, this will be six months after Cassie was killed, Dorothy's back. Fortunately, she's she's healed. She comes into the police headquarters, and she said that she's starting to get back some memory of the attack. And she remembers that Stuart Knowlton came in to see her the night that, that she was stabbed and angrily accused her of betraying him. And she said that he told her that the night of the murder, he'd stopped in the church to go to the bathroom and saw Cassie there, because remember she was going to the bathroom too. He waited for her to come out of the bathroom, 
asked her to play a game with him and then took her to his taxi, which was waiting outside. He said that he made her touch his penis and then rubbed it between her thighs. And we all know what was found on the thigh, like on her tights, right? He said while he was doing this, he felt, quote, euphoric. And she kept crying, of course. So he put his hand over her mouth to quiet her or shut her up. And she quit breathing. And remember the autopsy said that there was indication that a hand had been placed over her mouth. Then Dorothy went on to say he... At the time, he brought a knife out of somewhere, chased her around the room, and just slashed at her. And she lost consciousness. And I think everybody agreed that he totally intended to kill her because, like that one EMS person said, it's a miracle that she was alive. And if somebody had found her, like, minutes or maybe even seconds later, she very well may not be with us. So on May 26th of 1982, the St. Paul police got a search warrant for his residence and his body, meaning, you know, um, well, they didn't have DNA at the time. So probably blood and hair. And both of the blood and hair samples would yield some interesting results. His blood type corresponded with that found in the semen that was found on Cassie's tights. And this is, this is another very unusual thing about this case. When an FBI scientist was studying the trace evidence found on Cassie's body, he found an unusual hair on her clothes. It was a human hair. And he said he'd never seen any hair like it before. It was called ringed or banded hair. It has like a, I guess, a, a ring around it. And the shaft of the hair, you know, the, like, bottom part that sticks in your scalp, it had a very rare abnormality, um, a hair disease called pili annulati. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But it had stripes or bands on it, kind of like a raccoon's tail. So when the scientist got a hold of Stuart Knowlton's hair, guess what? It mashed the hair the weird type of banded hair found on Cassie. Now, what are the there's what are the chances of that? Hair is not like DNA. It's not like an exact match. Like the, the closest you can say is um, it's similar to or it's not similar to. But this was like remember he said he'd never seen hair like that. I looked this up out of curiosity to see, like, how rare it is. It's supposedly a rare genetic hair disease, also called ringed hair. And I couldn't even find a prevalence of it or, or like, what the, uh, the percentage of the population that has it is. Yeah. So some of the things that came out during the investigation were interesting. I don't know the year of this, but supposedly, well, not supposedly, for, as a matter of fact, Stuart Knowlton had spent some time in a mental hospital in Michigan after he was caught molesting a seven-year-old female. His trial lasted 13 days. There were 48 witnesses, over 100 exhibits. Um, the defendant chose not to testify. He was found 
guilty to nobody's surprise of first degree murder and second degree criminal sexual conduct sentenced to life in prison um he was eligible for parole in 2001 he did speak in court he was said to have given a 10 minute rambling statement and i have it here he said quote as god is my witness i swear to you this day i did not abduct Cassandra Lynn Hansen from the church she was attending, end quote. And then he, get, he adds, quote, I had no reason to take anyone's life, for God had not given me that right. I have had no reason to have any vengeance against Cassandra Lynn Hansen or Dorothy Noga, end quote. Now, interestingly, if, if you notice what he said, he says, I swear I did not abduct Cassie. He didn't say he didn't kill her. He didn't say he didn't molest her. He just said he didn't abduct her. An interesting choice of words. I mean, not that it matters because we know that he did. And Dorothy testified at the trial and she said that when he confessed to her that he was involved in Cassie's murder, that the conversation went something like this. He saw her in the church and he said to her, hi, how are you? She said, good. He said, what's your name? She said, Cassie. He said, are you here for the church services today? She said, yes. And he said, are you here with your mom and dad? And she said, just my mom. And then he asked her if she wanted to play a game. And she said, uh, what kind of game? And then he said he, according to Dorothy, he told her that he took her outside to his taxi. She got scared and started to scream. And in the taxi, she struggled to get away. And he then strangled her with his belt. And then, this is news to everybody, he took the buckle from her shoe and he said that he had a shoe fetish, which uh, are actually quite common. Not the shoes of six-year-old girls, but a lot of dudes. How many, I mean, how many do you know that, that like to see women in high heels? And I mean, that's not... As far as fetishes go, that's a pretty innocuous one, and it's pretty common. And I can see that conversation taking place. It, it makes sense. It makes sense that he would have to force her, you know, p like literally pick her up and take her out, because we know that Cassie was very cautious. I don't see her as being interested in some dirty old man wanting to play a game. I think that he would have had to use force there. After he was sentenced, he was first put in the mental health unit of Oak Park Heights State Prison. And then because the staff feared for his life, because you know how child killers, child molesters aren't liked too well in prison, he was moved to the St. Cloud Reformatory. He would come up for parole in 2001 and Cassie's family was there arguing vehemently against him being released, which of course he wasn't. And to probably nobody's sadness, he died on October 31st of 2006 in prison at age 75 of natural causes. As far as Cassie's family, her mother, Ellen, became like a lot of victims or victims' families became dedicated to educating others about the dangers of meeting people, uh, you know, child abduction and such, and making tougher laws that protect children 
And she founded an organization called Save Cassie's Friends, and it uses printed and video materials to educate kids about the dangers of abduction. You know, if some dirty old man says, do you want to play a game or do you want to play cards? Stuff like that. And probably the best part of this story is in December of 2017, they had a ceremony in St. Paul at police headquarters where they honored Dorothy and three police officers who worked really hard on Cassie's case. And remember, I told you earlier, she did get a medal. Well, I have a picture. She's she's getting some kind of, I don't know if it, it's actually a medal, but it, it's some kind of public award. Cassie's family was there. And there's a plaque in the church today that remembers the day that Cassie was abducted from the church. So there's a couple things about this case that really stand out for me. One was how ordinary people in the community, like Dorothy and Janice, went above and beyond what I think most people would do to help bring this person to justice. And Dorothy literally almost died in the process. And that's that she is a true hero for what she did. Um, and also, this was still, 1981 was still like the early days of profiling. And I think John Douglas's profile was eerily accurate on most of the points. The only thing he was really off about was the religious aspect of the crime, because remember, he thought that there was some significance that this happened in a church, and he thought maybe the perpetrator had religious delusions or, you know, some kind of a, maybe like Albert Fish, a religious mania or something. That turned out not to be true, but he was right on just about everything else. And one thing I want to say, I, I kept talking about Stuart Knowlton and calling him names and talking about it being stupid. Typically, child abductors are pretty sly. They enjoy kids. I mean, not not even sexually, but they like to be around them, play with them, uh, kind of, you know, how to speak their language. The ones I've met in the course of my work, I can could easily see why a kid would go with them because they are charming. They know how to flatter. They, um, I could easily see somebody being duped into thinking, wow, this person is nice. He's fun and interesting and he wants to, to play a game with me. Well, yeah, sure. I'm going to, but not this guy. I, I mean, he's just doesn't seem to have the charisma or the, um, ability to connect to kids to to entice them at all because he's just doesn't seem to have anything going for him at all i mean he is like a loser with a capital l he can't hold a job he can't he has relationship problems just and unfortunately i don't know anything about his childhood i would be willing to bet that it wasn't good because that's usually the way it is and it's also unusual that his target population seemed to be little girls like Cassie was six and uh the one girl that he, that he t wanted her to take off her pants I think she was seven but then he made a move on the 14 year olds and I, I think that's pretty unusual to have a preference of both little kids and teenagers but he uh he, he was like all over the place and I think we learned hopefully some very important lessons. The most obvious one is be careful 
tell your kids to be careful of people asking them to come in their apartment or help them or play with them or anything, basically. And I think I'm not telling, I'm not going to say that everybody should be like Dorothy because she almost got herself killed, but be more involved. If you see something suspicious, like somebody uh, carrying a kicking, screaming kid and putting them in a taxi, um, a red flag should go up and call the police. If if you don't want to get involved, I know a lot of people don't, call in an anonymous tip or call, you know, Crime Stoppers. I think you can be anonymous on that. You don't have to uh, even give your name or anything to help. So, um, if, if you're listening to this, I'm assuming that you're interested in crime, and usually people that like true crime are interested in helping to solve crimes. So, just uh, try to be more aware of what's going on around you, and basically that, that's, that's all you have to do in order to be helpful. If anybody says anything bizarre to you, like, uh, would you be an alibi witness? for me, um, that should be a big red flag. That's kind of a no-brainer because normal people don't say shit like that. Next week, I'm going to do another family-friendly case. It's a crime. It's a non-violent crime. It's a type of crime I've never done before, and I think the Indians are going to like it. It's really interesting. And I want to give a big shout out to my friend and listener, Becky. She has COVID, so I hope that she's getting better. So um, I will see everybody back here next week. Class dismissed. (laughs) 